Welcome to Wyoming, my 307. My name is Carla Mowell, and like many white people, I have family stories that connect us to Native Americans. My great-grandfather's first wife was Indian, a fact that was actually considered shameful for many years. And in fact, sadly, we don't know even her name or her tribal affiliation. My dad, who would be in his mid-80s today, remembered learning this in his 20s by overhearing whispered conversations between his mom and his aunt. I came to possess the definitive proof of this family secret after my grandma died. Deep in her closet was a hand-embroidered item the size of a swaddling sheet with her older sister Lydia's initials and date of birth. A few years later, Dad and I pieced together the story of Aunt Lyd, as he called her. Her mother had died in childbirth, and her dad was a cowboy. As you can imagine, you can't really cowboy with an infant in tow. So my great-grandfather took baby Lydia back to his family farm in Kansas and asked his parents if they would please take care of her until he could figure out a better situation for them. They refused, presumably because her mama was Indian. So he went to ask his neighbors, and they agreed to take her in. Almost a year later, he came back for his baby, who was now a toddler. The oldest daughter of the family had been the one who took care of little Lydia and embroidered the swaddling sheet that I now have. When he saw how attached she was to the baby, he proposed that they get married, and she agreed. Practicality ruled in those days. Many months later, they went several counties away, probably where nobody knew them, to register Lydia's birth. And at that time, they also changed her birthday so that it came after they were married. They went on to have a big family together and really tried to keep Lydia's origins a secret. But they never did get rid of the swaddling cloth that showed her real date of birth. As you can imagine, this family artifact is one of my greatest treasures. Go to any Wyomingites home, especially if they've been here for generations, and you will definitely find references to American Indian culture. Maybe you'll even see artifacts. Apart from the swaddling cloth, which is very personal to our family, I have so many arrowhead chips, a crushing tool, and even a painting my mom did of a young Indian girl from a photograph. I have friends who have boxes and boxes of arrowheads or even old moccasins and other cultural items. And that leads us to our guest today, Jordan Dresser. He is a leader in the Northern Arapaho tribe right here in Wyoming's Wind River Reservation. And we had a fascinating conversation about the power of artifacts. Let's have a listen. Well, welcome, Jordan Dresser. Uh, how should I introduce you, Jordan? I'm the chairman of the Northern Apple Tribe. And what does it mean to be the chairman of the Northern Arapaho Tribe? Different tribes do it different ways. Some people have chairman, some people have a president, and basically you're, you're, you're the task of running the meetings. And that's also the task of like, you're the, the, the figurehead and the point of contact for a lot of the um, information that you receive. So it's my okay. job to run the meetings and also disperse the information I receive to the other council members. So is it the equivalent of like a mayor or? To a certain extent, but if you think about it, there's only one position with those ones. Ours, there's six of us. So there, we all have six equal say and equal power. But so there are six chairmen? 
No, there's six council members. Oh, gotcha. Yes, six council members. They're all elected every two years, and then the council members select their chairperson, and then their chairperson, like I said, is the one that runs the meetings. Well, I have done a little bit of research on you, (laughs) and I know that your journey to this work that you're doing today was kind of through journalism and documentary filmmaking, and I was just thinking, you know, the through line in journalism, documentary filmmaking, and the work you're doing right now is kind of storytelling, and what is the story that most people don't know about the Wind River Reservation? Well. The Wind River Reservation is home to two tribes, you know, the Northern Rambo and the Eastern Shoshone. I think that most people don't know about is how we really have to work together with all of our joint resources. So we come together for intertribal and that's where we make decisions about our land and our water and things of that nature and oil and gas, just so we can um, have that conversation. I think that's very unique because other tribes don't have to do that. We have to because we both share this space. So that's very important for us. So literally the entire reservation belongs to both tribes? Um, yes. I guess I figured it was kind of divvied up. It's, it's not like that. Today what I wanted to talk to you about is artifact repatriation. And I, I first heard about that. I, in fact, just that term, artifact repatriation, I first heard on a podcast called the Indian Relay Podcast. So shout out to Indian Relay. So I want to kind of delve deeper into that in particular. And of course, artifacts are basically things, you know, but things that are culturally or historically important. Why would you say those objects are even important? I mean, old things get old and they fall apart. And why do we have to treasure them? Well, because when Native people made items, they had a purpose. They weren't things of art or things that you, you know displayed in your house or anything like that. They were they served a purpose. A lot of times it's tied to our ceremonies. Those are very important to us because they're a connection to our culture. And it's very important that we not only utilize them all, but that we know where they're all at. And that's really the repatriation side. So what is... How how would you explain to a layperson what that means, repatriation, and why is it important? Repatriation is bringing an item back to a source community. That's important because it's us taking back what was what is art. So there are artifacts that are just spread out across the U.S. that you are actually working to get back. So I saw a documentary film called What Was Ours that tells the story of that. How does that actually work? So, of course, I'm recommending that everybody see the film because you can see it on Amazon and download it. It it may be available in other places, too. I'm not sure. How does that work to actually repatriate items? There's a lot of different ways. The most common one is through NAGPRA, Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act of 1990. It's a federal law that was passed that applies to federally recognized tribes and also to try to institutions that receive federal funds and basically it's a mechanism for tribes to regain their items back that's the most commonly used one when you say used you guys use that to claim items or how is it used what do you mean like the law itself or what do you mean well i guess what i'm i'm saying is like how do you get items back do you use that law to to say hey this is ours we need it back or 
does it is that law to educate people on what their responsibility is if they if they have possession of those items? No, the law is to um bring those items back. So basically, it's it's law that tribes use to have conversations with institutions to see what they have in their collections and then to deem the items that are appropriate to bring back. And it's 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 a it's a lot of work because, like I said, it's a federal law, but it has limitations as well. I'm wondering, is there is there a hierarchy of value, of cultural value to you guys? Like what what things are most important to you to actually repatriate? Um, for us, it's the human remains. Those are the, like the number one thing, because under NAGPRA, there's three sub- subjects that you can bring back, and that's human remains, sacred items, and items of cultural patrimony. Items of cultural patrimony mean that it's owned collectively by the group in that an individual didn't have the right to give it away. So that's interesting that you said an individual didn't have a right to give it away because I have seen items like in different small town. I'm a total small town museum junkie. (laughs) And I have seen items in small town museums. And sometimes it's just like a thing and you it doesn't have any write-up on it. You don't know what it is. You're just looking at it. But other times there's kind of like a little bit of the background on it. And I have seen it where it's like this was given to Dr. So-and-so by such and such person from the tribe. So are you saying that that original person who gave it away really shouldn't have or, or that things have changed since then? Or how, how does that work? So an item of cultural patrimony, that, that it's, it is hard to describe because sometimes you have to be members of those tribes in order to kind of know. So it could be a pair of moccasins that they use specifically for a ceremony. You know, it could be a belt or something like that. That That's that specifically saying like that's an item that we use for those that specific purpose. So therefore, maybe somebody could keep them. But at the same time, it was like it belonged collectively to the tribe. I mean people gave things away due to the fact that, I mean, you got to remember this is the reservation system when it first started. So a lot of people were starving. So there was like eat, feed or, you know, it was life or death basically. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of like, yeah. Today when people hawk their dearest items because they need to make rent or whatever, kind of similar to that, that that's the resources they had. So they sacrificed them to keep their family well. I had never thought of that. Yeah. Well, I, I wanted to kind of talk about the documentary a little bit. Uh-huh. Um, what was ours? Because I, I saw it a while ago, but I, I need to watch it again. But it was just so impactful. It just told such an amazing story. And what was it like for you to participate in it? Um, well, What Was Ours was filmed over uh, almost a four-year period. And it just capture the lives of various people on the Wind River Reservation, but most of all, it tells a story about who owns the material culture of Native people. You know, a lot of our items are in museums. So it kind of talked about who owns it and how do tribes potentially bring these items back. And it was, uh, it was a long experience, but it was very worthwhile because it shed light on topics that we needed to discuss. Yeah, and like you said, it was about several different people. Yes. Um, and there were so many impactful moments. And I remember one where Michaela, who is a dancer, talked about how Native and non-Native people are kind of in different worlds and that she sees herself as a dancer. She sees herself as dancing in both worlds. And I just love that phrase. 
I'm a bicultural person myself. My mom was from Bolivia, and I grew up in my mom's Bolivian culture and my dad's white Wyoming culture. And I really identified with that statement. But what do you think she meant by that? I think that, you know, it's a it's a statement that you hear quite a bit amongst Native communities because it's the fact that we, we were expected to live in two worlds. One is our Native world, and the other is, you know, the predominant white world. So it's like you're constantly juggling between these two identities, in a sense, and being told what's which one is more weight and which one has more importance. And I think that's something we all struggle with. So part of the story in that film was a trip that you took with some elders in your community, and you guys went to visit the Field Museum's collection. Mm-hmm. And I have a quote from, from one of the scenes where you said, artifacts can transform a person's life. What did you mean by that? What I meant by that is the fact that a lot of those items hold power because they were tied to our culture and also our ceremonies. So they that connection still exists. They're just in a different place. So I think that us as Native people, when we see these things, it's not something from the past. It's something that's like, this is now. This is still relevant to us today. So I think that once people make that connection, they start realizing who they are as Arapaho or Shoshone people. So part of your work has also been to set up the Northern Arapaho experience at the casino there on the Wind River Reservation. So that kind of what you just said kind of changes my perspective on what it must have been like for you to use these artifacts and to display them in kind of a traditional museum setting, but they're not just objects of beauty to you. So they're, they have more meaning. How did that perspective kind of affect the choices you made in setting up and in curating that museum space? Well, we were very careful about what we displayed and and the stories that we told. So we worked closely with different elders to ensure that it was the proper way. It was, it was a long project, but in the end, we feel like it was a very important one because it told a very important story, which is, this is who we are as rabble people. Are there any like specific choices on display or what to put in the display and what to leave out that you could share with us? We wanted things that were a mixture of, you know, historical and also contemporary art pieces and actually has a lot of contemporary art, which is which is nice. You know, we wanted a space where a lot of our because we have very talented local artists. So we wanted to give a space where they could tell very important stories. That also shows the continuum of of your people's lives. Yes. Another thing that you said in the documentary that I wanted to ask you about was that You basically said, kind of called out, you know, that there's a lot of ignorance in Wyoming about the reservation. What assumptions or or misunderstandings would you like to dispel here in Wyoming? About the tribes? Yeah, and about Um, reservation living. Well, there's a lot, you know. I think that people think that it's a foreign place and it's it's crime-ridden and these different things. I mean, we do have our problems, but at the same time, we're... Uh, people who take pride in our culture and who we are, but also we we're trying to strive to exercise our sovereignty, which means that we're independent nations and we can kind of do things our own way. And I think sometimes people think, well, if this applies, the state's doing this and applies to all of them. Like, no, you know, when it came to the vaccines and 
to the masks, you know, we were very strict about it. And we're almost 80% vaccinated, which is a huge feat. I mean, we're the ones carrying Wyoming in that sense. And I think that's a huge thing. But people would ask that, well, how are you guys able to do that? Well, we're sovereign nations. We're able to make our own rules. Right. I actually visited the Wind River. I, I just, you know, wanted to go see like the Sacagawea Cemetery and that kind of stuff. So it was outdoor stuff, but it was during the, the height of the pandemic. And right away I noticed, you know, that it was very different. Things were very, very clearly stated. You could not go into any buildings if you didn't have a mask on. And it sure. just, to me, it felt like very kind of a relief, to be honest, because it's not like you're walking into a situation like, I don't know what I'm going to what I'm getting into, it was just very clear. So I appreciated that. Yeah, no, that was very important. We're protecting our people is the best way we could describe that. You guys are 80%, did you say 80% vaccinated? Yes. Okay, so you're 80% vaccinated. Do you also have different outcomes than the rest of Wyoming in terms of, you know, how many people have actually gotten COVID or have died from COVID? I haven't looked at the latest figures with that one, but we have like we were hit very early. That's why we decided to be so proactive. We had like close to like 100 deaths. I think actually mm-hmm. 150, somewhere around that vicinity. It was very big for us. Like you said, you got hit early and that yeah. that helped really define your messaging yes. and your actions. Well, back to artifact repatriation. Like I said, I, I really love small town museums and we have so many of them here in Wyoming and they have very varied and interesting collections. But I've seen a huge variety of how small towns actually display and present the artifacts. You know, like some some just have like boxes and boxes and boxes of arrowheads and unlabeled material. But every now and then a small museum will specifically outline their connection to Native communities or elders. Are there any other places or museums in Wyoming that you feel like are doing a good job of telling, respectfully telling your people's story? Yes, um, there's quite a bit. And there's museums in Colorado, um, the Museum of Boulder, um, the Discovery Museum of Fort Collins, there's just various places like that that have collaborated with the tribes and got their um, consultation feedback that really tell an accurate story about what it means to be a Arapaho. What about here in Wyoming? Are there any that you could give a shout out to? Cody does a great job and they have Native individuals on staff as well. And I think the reason why institutions like Cody or Boulder or Fort Collins do well is the fact that they consult with tribes. That's the key thing. They're not taking guesses. They're just going yes. straight to the source. So what what would you like volunteers or staff, because a lot of these small town museums are actually run by volunteers, what would you want them to know about handling and displaying artifacts? And can they reach out to folks? I think the number one thing is that, that they should always have a working relationship with the tribes, you know. Both tribes, the Northern Rappel and Eastern Shoshone tribes, employ full-time tribal historic preservation offices. And they have officers who specifically... Um, work with various institutions that are doing well and also agencies that are doing construction work just to ensure that cultural sites don't get destroyed but also they consult quite a bit with museums and talk about what can be displayed and what should it be. That's such a good resource because a lot of these small museums are basically collections of things that people from the town have donated so they don't they don't have curators and a lot of resources. They're just trying to keep the lights on and getting people through the door. So that's a really great resource for them that 
they probably don't know much about. Yeah. And you had mentioned contemporary art. Um, you know, we know that we're talking today mostly about artifacts, but Indians are a contemporary people with a living culture here today. And how can folks learn a little bit more about that? Are there events or places that non-Indians would be welcome to come in and learn more about the culture? I think that there's different art scenes kind of popping up everywhere. You know, um, Lander does quite a bit of, bit of stuff with like um, the Lander Art Center is becoming a hotspot for a lot of Native artists. They do different shows as well. But yeah, there's a lot of artists on social media who share their work and like Colleen Friday, um, Talissa Veda, Robert Martinez, Al Hubbard. There's just like a, a, a growing list of people who are active and, and um, do a really good job. What is something that people driving through Wyoming may not realize about us and about our state? Wyoming's one of those places that are kind of really untouched in a lot of different ways. If you come here, people will truly see things for what they are. And that's very important for us. And I think it's important we carry that attitude for future generations so that we protect what we have in terms of everything, you know, the cultural sites, the water, air, everything. Right. And what is the hardest thing about living in Wyoming? I think the hardest part living in Wyoming is the fact that we are isolated, that we can kind of be cut off from the larger movement and the important conversations that people have about what it means to be a better citizen. I think sometimes we can kind of be isolated so we don't hear the importance of why certain movements are important to, to other cultures and also be experienced other cultures as well. Right. And last, what do you love the most about Wyoming? This is home, and this is home to not only us, but other tribes have called this place their home as well, too. So I just like the fact that this has such a historical place and meaning before it became the estate of Wyoming. You know, this was home to indigenous people forever. I'm going to really stretch my creativity. I think I'm going to choose for the Wyoming wildlife to go with with this. But I was going to talk about wind, which is like a natural thing, but it's not an animal. I think that works because, I mean, it was named okay. after that, you know, but I mean, I think that's a good idea. And and so many people, when when I've asked them, like, what's the hardest about living in Wyoming or, you know, things about Wyoming, they will mention the wind because we are a very windy state. It's just that where I live, we don't get the tremendous winds. Do you, is it really windy in the Wind River Reservation? Um, actually, not really too much because we're we have mountain, the Wind River mountain range there. Well, thank you so much, Jordan. I really appreciate your input and insight. And I'm going to um, put some links in the show notes so that people can follow along. Okay. That sounds perfect. All right. You have a good day. Bye. Thank you so much, Jordan. That was so informative. Today's dot on the map is Ethity, Wyoming, which means good in Arapaho. Ethity is a small town in the Wind River Reservation, just outside of Riverton. It hosts the annual Ethity Celebration. This is a powwow every July that is back after a long break during the pandemic. Now, near Ethity is the St. Stephen's Catholic Church, which is what originally drew me to the area. 
My adopted grandma used to travel there to attend Mass several times a year, and I never thought to ask her why, so I really wanted to visit it myself. I still don't know why she went, but I was definitely charmed by the absolutely gorgeous architecture of the church. It's a historic mission to the Arapahoe tribe, and it includes a little museum, gorgeous grounds with a labyrinth, and the spectacular church. In the church is an altar that's fashioned as a huge drum, and the stations of the cross, as well as other imagery, are all Indian. Now call me weird, but I also like to visit cemeteries, and the one there is beautiful. Many of the headstones are handmade and so much more personal than the granite ones, and just lovely. Ethity is more of a community than a tourist destination, but it's well worth a stop. It has the Morningstar restaurant in the Little Wind Casino, which it's basically diner food, but it does include specials periodically that are more culturally specific. Or you can stop at the Ethity store and grab a bite or groceries for a picnic lunch. On to Wyoming wildlife. So far on this segment, I've covered several mammals and haven't delved into plants and birds, amphibians. But as you heard me tell Jordan, today's segment is a little different and I'm talking about wind. Wind is a remarkable feature throughout our state. In fact, we rank number one in the U.S. for the most wind and have an annual average wind speed of 13 miles an hour. Our windiest town is Rollins, Wyoming, but it's closely followed by Laramie and Cheyenne and Casper. Where I live in the Bighorn Basin, it's quite sheltered because we're surrounded by mountains. But that didn't save us this past summer when the weather service clocked 70 mile an hour wind one day. And then the wind destroyed the meter so we don't truly know how much we sustained. Folks around here are saying 100 miles an hour and it sure felt like it. Well, we also have the Wind River Mountains. In fact, our guest today, Jordan Dresser, lives on the Wind River Reservation, which is at the foot of the Wind River Mountain Range. You know, Wyoming seems to love to complain about wind, but what's it good for? Birds, especially birds of prey. They thrive on being able to soar in our windy state. Wind farms, yep, they're hated by some folks, but they're a natural match for our windy climate. So there you have it. Wind. Wyoming. A match made in heaven. (laughs) So we blew through another episode, and thank you so much for listening. Please share the pod with Wyoming-loving friends and family. Over the holidays, when you're getting together with friends and family, show somebody how to access a podcast. About half of America has never even listened to a podcast, so there's a lot of people out there that we can bring into this wonderful media, and you can help. I hope you learned something today about native artifact repatriation, about ethity, and about wind, a Wyoming staple. Thank you so much, Jordan Dresser, for sharing a little bit of your world with us. If you're listening out there and have any native artifacts, enjoy them, display them, write down what they mean to you and to your family. And if you think that they might mean something to the folks over on the Wind River Reservation, please reach out and discuss repatriation. I have a link for you in the show notes. Well, thank you for subscribing if you do. And please subscribe if you want more wonderful Wyoming in your feed. Check out the website with all the show notes, wyomingmy307.blogspot.com. You can always email me with questions, suggestions, corrections, 
wyomingmy307@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Follow me over on Instagram, wyomingmy307, all one word. Every day I post a picture of our wonderful Wyoming. And let me know if you have any artifacts tucked away and tell me what they mean to you and to your family. Until we meet again, happy trails to you. Bye. Thank you.